Thank you, Michelle. Very well read. And I want to just thank all of you that came last week to the to the uh, work we have at the school too. We had an excellent turnout. We had a lot of stuff accomplished. It basically transformed that whole site up there. So thank you for coming. This morning I want to think with you for just a few moments about worship, specifically corporate worship, what we do when we come here week by week. And to begin, I'd like to tell you a personal story. It happened many years ago, but the memory of it is still very vivid. In the spring of 1978, I was living and working in a suburb of Houston, Texas. And as some of you know that despite it being Texas, there is quite a bit of cultural sophistication in Houston, including the Houston Symphony Orchestra, which consistently ranks among the top 10 American orchestras. I'd never been to a concert there in Houston, but it just so happened that a friend of mine from church had a pair of tickets to the final concert of the year. And not only was it the, the final concert of that season, it was also to be the final performance of the Houston Symphony under the baton of a very much loved and well-respected musical director. The man whose name I no longer remember had been director there for maybe a dozen years. He had honed that orchestra to a fine edge and his tenure was coming to a close. So my friend called me up and said, there's going to be this farewell performance. It will probably be very, very good. It's been sold out for months, but I've got a couple of tickets. Would you like to go with me? Of course, I said. So three weeks later, we were at Symphony Hall. The place was absolutely packed. We had seats in the center front row of the first balcony, probably a couple of the best seats in the house. There was a main floor. There were three or four balconies. I didn't see an empty seat anywhere. There was only one piece on the program that evening. It was Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It had been chosen by the orchestra for that occasion because it was said to be the director's favorite piece. Now, my mother was a lover of classical music as I was growing up in northeastern Ohio. We had a kind of half highbrow culture in our home when I was a kid. Dad was definitely a country music fan and a football kind of guy, all right? Teresa Brewer, Dolly Parton. But mom, the coal miner's daughter from the hollers of West Virginia, had a yearning for great music. So one day... Dad bought her a phonograph, and she began collecting classical music recordings by mail. That's how you did it back in the day before Pandora and Spotify. You signed up for the Reader's Digest Record of the Month Club. In Mom's collection, she had a set of Beethoven's Nine Symphonies on vinyl by the Cleveland Orchestra, which was her favorite orchestra. Dad rooted for the Cleveland Browns. Mom rooted for the Cleveland Orchestra. That's how it was for us. Neither one of them ever attended a live performance of their favorite team because we didn't have the money for that kind of stuff. But we watched it on TV and we listened to it on the phonograph. And those records got played often. In fact, I, I still have that worn out set of Beethoven symphonies packed away in a box in my basement. So the piece was familiar to me. 
Even so, when my friend invited me to that concert, I got a copy of it on cassette tape, and I listened to it in bits and pieces in the car on the way back and forth to work in the weeks leading up to the, to the date. And as the date got closer, I was ready. And finally, the moment came. The musicians had tuned, the singers had taken their places, the lights dimmed, and the maestro stro strode briskly to the podium as the applause thundered. He bowed briefly to, briefly to the audience, then turned, ascended the podium, and faced his musicians for the last time. After a long moment of absolute silence in that great hall, he raised his baton, and for the next hour, there was music. Now, I've never been a frequent concert goer, but it was the most memorable concert orchestra performance I have ever attended. But the most wonderful moment, the most incredible and unforgettable moment didn't begin until the music was almost over. Some of you know how the Ninth Symphony comes to its finale. And a few of you can probably even now hear those last few bars in your mind. In the audience that night, so many years ago in Houston, there were those who knew the music was 10 seconds from completion, and they began to rise by the hundreds and applaud even before the musicians had finished playing, which is totally out of character for an orchestra uh, symphony audience. You may even think it was disrespectful, but that night it was not disrespectful. And instantly it spread. And before the last notes were played, the whole concert hall had erupted into a deafening applause, the likes of which I, have ne I had never heard before, nor have I since. And for five solid minutes, it went on and on and on. It was as if that huge audience was one single monolithic worshiping being. We roared our appreciation and we would not be quieted. And then, as I watched, the members of the orchestra began to rise and clap as well. And then the choir. And that's when it dawned on me. We were not applauding the musicians, excellent though they were. We were honoring the director. The orchestra that night had not been playing for us, even though we had play, paid good money to get in. Well, I hadn't paid any good money. My friend had paid it. But they were playing and singing wholly and completely for the man on the podium. And somehow those musicians had drawn us all in. We, who thought we were the audience, somehow during the course of that concert, we had become one with them. All those musicians and us in the seats, we were all gathered there that night just for the pleasure of that greatly loved man in the black tuxedo with the baton. And we were saying, we love you. Week by week, we gather the church from its various walks of life and from its quiet infiltration of the world, the salt of the 
the salt of the earth precipitating out and coming together. Week by week, the church materializes here for the purpose of worship, to honor and revere and praise the one who is truly worthy to receive it. For what he has made, for what he has done, for what he has promised to do, and for who he is. He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The seven worship offerings, as it says in Revelation, the fifth chapter. Worship is almost a, a contraction of the word worthship. He is worth it, and he alone. It is the premier purpose of God's church to worship him. It is our first and primary reason for being. Of course, it is true that the church has a mission. We are called to evangelize the lost. We are called to make disciples. We are called to serve the world. But our highest calling and our first calling is for what we are to be. And we are to be the bride of Christ. Someday our evangelistic mission will be finished, all done. Someday there will be no more poor or sick people left to heal. But we will worship forever. One day some of the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And there was an honest-hearted lawyer watching and he asked Jesus a question. He says, of all the commandments... Which one is the greatest? In other words, Jesus, cut to the chase here. What's the single most important thing any of us can do? You remember what Jesus answered? The most important one, Jesus said, is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is worship. There's a fundamental difference between the church and other communities like the Rotary Club or the Boys and Girls Clubs or even online communities like Facebook. The church is a worshiping community called to come together worship corporately. And our prime purpose when we gather is not to see our friends or hear a good sermon or sing our favorite songs, although those are all good things. Our prime purpose is to worship God, to applaud Him, to tell Him as His bride that we love Him and we think that He is absolutely, without a doubt, the very best. As Eugene Peterson translates Psalm 96, Bravo, God, bravo. Everyone join in the great shout, encore. In awe before the beauty, in awe before the might. Let's hear it from the sky with earth joining in and a huge round of applause from the sea. Let wilderness turn cartwheels, animals come dance. Put every tree of the forest in the choir. An extravaganza before God as he comes. We know these things but we drift. It's the human condition. You know there is a danger when you do something routinely. 
And here's a question to think about. Is it possible for worship to become routine? Maybe the weekly practice of corporate worship requires constant renewal simply because it's a weekly practice. In the story Michelle read to us a few moments ago, there is one key principle of worship given to us directly by Jesus. The story of the woman at the well is a very well-known, no pun intended, story. And although we tend to think about it in evangelistic terms most often, it's one of Jesus' most direct teachings on worship. Even the context has its roots in worship because the woman in the story is a Samaritan woman. And in the days of the Jews, the Palestinians, I mean, the, the, the Samaritans and the Jews got along even worse than the Jews and the Palestinians do today. Samaritans were considered by, by Jews to be kind of spiritual half-breeds. The Jews, of course, worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshipped at a worship site on Mount Gerizim, which was a little like the temple in Jerusalem, only it was a, an eclectic amalgamation of pagan ceremony mixed with the genuine worship of Yahweh, a kind of religious smorgasbord, lots of spiritual diversity, lots of tolerance when it came to religious practice which to the Jews, I mean, they considered that to be an abomination. So they did everything they could to avoid the Samaritans. They would go out of their way to travel around the country, but Jesus went right through it. Most of the Jews of the day wouldn't even talk to a Samaritan, but Jesus engaged them in conversations, even if they were women, even if they were compromised women, which is exactly what you have going on in this story. In this five-minute conversation between Jesus and this compromised woman, he teaches a significant truth about worship. He cuts through all the cultural chit-chat right to the heart of the matter because he knows deep in her heart this woman is an honest seeker after truth. She is ready for a better way of life. So Jesus says, I'll give you living water that will quench your constant thirst. I'm ready says the woman, and Jesus knows that she is. So he ratchets up the intensity of the conversation a notch. Good, he says. Go get your husband and come back. I don't have a husband, she says. I know, Jesus says. And then he reads her life to her as if she were an open book. And suddenly she knows he's no ordinary man. He is at the least a prophet. So she ratchets up the conversation a notch. I want to talk about worship, she says. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem. And most of us would probably say this woman is trying to sidetrack Jesus with this question, but we might be wrong because Jesus gives her the benefit of the doubt. And he actually gives, actually gives her an answer. He engages her in this conversation. In fact, he gives her the, one of the most significant teachings anywhere in the New Testament on worship. Verse 21. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. First of all, Jesus says, when it comes to true worship, place isn't the issue. 
in the Old Testament, place was, a very, was very important for corporate worship. That's one reason the Samaritans got in trouble in the first place. They chose an alternate place. In the Old Testament, worship happened at the tabernacle and later in the temple, eventually in a particular city chosen by God, the holy city, Jerusalem. And even the temple was prioritized according to place. And that spatial prioritization became more and more exclusive as you came nearer and nearer to the most important place. In the days of Jesus, the temple had a court all around the outside known as the court of Israel into which Gentiles could not come. Inside the court of Israel was the court of men, into which Jewish women could not come. Inside the court of men was the court of the priests, into which Jewish men could not come. And finally, inside the temple itself was the holy place where only the officiating priest could come, and ultimately the most holy place where the visible manifestation of the presence of God dwelt and into which only the high priest could come only one day a year. Place was very, very significant. But New Testament worship is built on a different paradigm. We might call it a more genuine paradigm. That Friday afternoon when Jesus offered up his life on the cross, do you remember what happened to the temple curtain? It was torn in two by God's hand. And after that, the Bible never again speaks of any place on this earth as a holy place. No buildings, no holy compartments. There are only two things of which it does speak as holy. Time and people. God time, God's holy day, and people, God's holy people, his bride, his church. No longer does God inhabit a building as he did in the Old Testament times. Now he inhabits his people by means of the Holy Spirit which comes to live in their hearts because the holy place is no longer on earth. Where is it? It's in heaven. That's right. So this particular room that we're sitting in right now, there's nothing holy about it unless God's people are in it. And that's you. That's why we can decorate it up like an archaeological dig without desecrating it. We respect it, but we don't reverence it because it's just a building. And by the way, speaking of reverence, we sometimes have the idea that in order to be acceptable to God, worship must be reverent, and it should be. And we have the idea that reverent means quiet or stately, but turns out that's not the case. In the book of Revelation, John describes what corporate worship is like in heaven, and there's nothing quiet or stately about it. Over and over again, he uses the word loud, there are loud voices, loud songs, thunder, lightning, earthquakes, loud trumpets even. The adjective loud is used 21 times, three times more than any other book in the Bible. It may be reverent in heaven, but it is certainly not quiet there. Our association of reverence with quietness has its origins more in the Catholic idea of worship than it does in Scripture. 
So again, Jesus says here, place is not the important thing. And in a wider sense, what he is saying is methodology is not the most important thing because this woman's question really centers around the mechanics of worship. What's the right place? What's the right method? What's the right style? And here's what Jesus says is important. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come, Jesus says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The most important thing is not mechanics or place. The important thing is that the worshiper be fully engaged, mind and heart, spirit and truth. By spirit, Jesus means with your whole heart. By truth, he means just that, with your whole brain. He says to the woman, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Why does he say this? Because the Jews, to the Jews, had been given the very word of God. The principle is that God-honoring worship is in congruent harmony with the written word of God. But the bigger principle is this. True worship requires the whole person, heart as well as mind, spirit as well as truth, emotions as well as intellect. And it's interesting that he says spirit and truth rather than truth and spirit. He puts the spirit part first. I, I wonder why he does that. I wonder if it might be because before we can truly honor God with our thinking, which occurs up here, we've got to experience the hunger and the thirst for him, which happens right here. We've got to love him before the intellect can be fully engaged. The heart's got to be fully released. So let's do a little thought experiment. Let's consider two extremes of worship. One way out here and one way out here, all right? On one extreme would be a worship experience based exclusively on spirit. No truth. It's way out there. The premium on that kind of worship is on generating an emotional experience, all right? Platform people are specialists at moving people to laughter or tears. The attenders learn to evaluate worship in terms of their experience or the emotion that they feel. And a good worship experience is one in which they really get something from it. It would be very easy to become a worship junkie always looking for whatever experience, whatever church can provide the best fix. One writer, whom you all have read, would call something like this fanaticism. That's one extreme. Way over on the opposite end of the, of the spectrum is the other extreme, way out there on the other end, a worship experience based exclusively on truth with no spirit. Doctrinal purity is paramount. Everything is very, very orderly. New forms, new music, new instrumentation, all very suspect. 
There may be great creeds to recite, lots of exegetical material to digest, and yet somehow the heart and the spirit are not seized with the wonder and passion that characterize those in Scripture who fall on their faces when they encounter the living God. No one is ever so moved that they actually move. Here it's easy to spot theological error, but it's also boring. There's no awe. There's no revival. There's no joy. The same writer would call this worship experience dry as the hills of Gilboa. Jesus says, God seeks worshipers not stuck in one extreme or the other. He's looking for worship grounded in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. People nowadays, and I think it's all of us to some degree, I think it's me. We have a tendency to approach worship as consumers, participating with the expectation of what we can get from it. And if we want to be real honest here, maybe we even have an underlying expectation to please ourselves. But is that really the essence of worship? Maybe worship is not about what I get. Maybe it's about what I give. Think about this for a moment, and this will be almost like a, a Gary Larson Farside cartoon, all right? But stick with me on this and just imagine this. Imagine the Israelites just barely escaped from Egypt, standing before this quaking mountain, billowing smoke, right in the very thundering, shaking presence of God himself. Dark clouds, lightning all around, ground shaking. And imagine them muttering to each other, we're leaving, we're going back to our tents because we don't sing any of the old songs anymore, like the old tambourine song. Why don't we ever sing the tambourine song anymore? Yeah, somebody else says, I don't like it when Moses leads worship. He's way too intense. I like Aaron better. Yeah, and this is way too formal, all the smoke and, and fire and mystery. I like a more casual style. Yeah, and how about Miriam's dance? I mean, that was like way over the top, wasn't it? Whatever happened to reverence anyway? Can you just imagine that? That is not how it went down according to Scripture. They were filled with awe and trembling and hope and wonder and fear because right there in the middle of nowhere in front of the bunch of this ex-slaves, God had shown up. So here's the antidote for worship consumerism. Are you ready for this? The antidote for worship consumerism is to understand that when we come to worship, we're not the ones being entertained. God is. God is here. Right in front of the bunch of us. Worship is a very big deal because God himself is the ultimate audience. When I'm a worship consumer, I arrive thinking, this better be worth it. When I come as a spirit and truth worshiper, I arrive knowing God is the audience, and I think, he is worth it. So what I do reflects not only what I think about God, but what I feel about God. Here's another word picture. Corporate worship is like a divine drama. We are the actors, 
and the actresses. What we say and what we sing is the script. Around us are the props, the offering box, the musical instruments, the flowers, the images on the screen. What we do or don't do shows what we feel and think about God because he's the audience. I went to Symphony Hall in Houston 45 years ago as a consumer. My friend had paid 60 bucks a piece in 1978 dollars for us to get in. I expected a good concert, but in the process, I got caught up in the adoration of the music director. It was really all about him. And when we come to worship, we want to be caught up in the adoration of our creator, redeemer, sustainer God. Now, of course, there's a balance. When we worship well, we do get something from it. In fact, when we come, we should expect to get something from it because Hebrews 11 and verse 6 commands us to. Listen to this. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he does what? He rewards those who earnestly seek him. You cannot really worship without getting something back because when God's people gather for worship, God freely offers the blessing of his presence and he delights to do it, especially when we are fully engaged, mind and heart. So, how can we do that? I'm going to offer a few practical suggestions here that have been helpful to me and to some others. Four quick ones and then we're finished. Number one, try preparing yourself ahead of time for worship. Football players prepare ahead of time for the big game. Executives prepare ahead of time for the big presentation. And worshipers can prepare ahead of time for worship too, both mind and spirit. Every Friday afternoon, the bulletin is on the website by 2 p.m. You could read the scripture for the day, maybe in a number of different translations, and meditate on it. You could read the quotes on the Today's Message page. You could notice the songs and the hymns that have been chosen. And if there's one that's not familiar, you could listen to it on YouTube. I mean, it's absolutely amazing how many songs are available on YouTube. If you can have the title of the song, you can find it on YouTube in all sorts of different styles and performances. So if you see one you don't know, listen to it ahead of time. If you see a hymn that's familiar, you could look up the story of how it came to be written. David sometimes shares these stories with us when he leads. And when we know the stories then we can join in the experience of the writer and we can sing with understanding. One way I prepare myself for worship is by noticing creation. This week I was out in my driveway picking blackberries, like I know a number of you have been. These big blackberry brambles have grown up in absolutely pitiful dirt along the driveway and they have not seen a drop of water since May, not a single drop. But the berries have gotten big and sweet and juicy. And as I was picking, I was expressing my admiration to God for creating such a plant that can survive in such poor conditions 
and turned dusty, dry dirt and sunshine into luscious, dripping blackberries. That's pretty amazing. How does that happen? And then every night we have a sunset. Every single night God paints another brand new, full-color, three-dimensional, moving masterpiece across the sky. No two are ever the, ever the same. Every single evening. I think he does it in the morning too, but I miss most of those. And I thought, God, you are such a masterful creator, truly the maestro of creating beauty and life. Indeed, you do all things well. And I brought these thanksgivings with me when I came this morning. I consciously choose something through the week to thank God for when I come on Sabbath. And I can prepare myself by consciously telling myself as I drive in, I've come to worship God this morning. I expect to meet him here. I say that to myself. One of the things that our music team does each week to help you prepare is this. They prepare some songs for you to sing before we even start, right at the beginning. We had three this morning. There's usually one or two that are very familiar and maybe one that's a little less so. We do these songs as a prelude, as a warm-up, so that we are ready to go when the call to worship comes. These are not just time fillers. We tune our hearts to sing his praise. See? And by the way, you may not realize how many people are involved every single week to prepare this place, this space, and the flow of the program so that we will have the, the opportunity to worship. We, they can't make us worship, but they can provide the opportunity for us to worship. I mentioned music. We have a lot of musicians here, and you know what? They invest a lot of time so that they are prepared to lead you well. Four different teams serve every single month. They locate music. They arrange transitions. They come and rehearse. Our worship teams do two full rehearsals every week so that they can lead well and provide opportunity for us all to worship together. And my hat is off to them. We have people who make music slides for the music, and I know two of them that spend hours every single week to make sure the visual graphics are winsome and as attractive as they can, uh, they can be. It's not unusual for the person putting the visual images together to spend eight or ten hours to make the slide run so that we can all worship with our minds and our hearts a little bit more fully. There are people who prepare artistic offerings using flowers and decorative objects to enhance the, the, the worship atmosphere of our space. There are audio people and video people who come early and they attend all the rehearsals as well so that we can hear well and we can see well. There are people who come here every week and they clean and dust and vacuum and they make sure all the props are in place. It's really a big deal to prepare for worship when you consider all the different investments people are making in it. And it should be because God is worth it. It's not perfect because perfection is not the goal when we worship. Excellence is the goal. And so many people are doing excellent work around here when it comes to worship. And I just want to thank all of you for doing that. A lot of time, a lot of effort. 
So that's number one. You prepare yourself ahead of time. Number two, this is kind of simple, show up, right? The bottom line is you cannot worship corporately alone. Just can't. Now, of course, there are times and there are reasons that we need to stay home or we need to be away. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. But in general, God calls us to worship together, live, face-to-face. -face. It's his way. YouTube and Loma Linda Broadcasting are very good things, but they are not corporate worship. We live in an age where we can get the best worship speakers on the planet and the best musicians on the planet at the click of a mouse, but we need the experience of meeting together, and God loves it when we do. He loves it. Number three, I can choose to invest myself fully in each moment here, even when things seem pretty ordinary. Okay? Too often in worship, we experience what psychologists call mindlessness. We go on autopilot. We drift. We sleep. So I must practice not to wait for something to grab my attention, but to say to God, God, I am fully present. I am listening. I am responding. I am confessing. I am praising every moment I offer myself to you. We say that. We actually say that. One thing that I have found that works for me is to write notes during the sermon. And that's the place where a lot of people drift off. And I don't, that's, that's just the way it is, okay? If you don't want to do that, try writing notes. It has always worked for me. You know? Another thing I do is this. I expect a worship moment to occur sometime during the service, and I wait for it. A moment when God's goodness and his beauty just seem to break through the routine and grab me. It happens for me almost every week, and it usually happens during one of the songs, okay? a particular phrase, or maybe a, a particular verse and an image there with the music as I'm singing, and it will just suddenly take my breath away. And it's almost an overwhelming sense of God's grace or his patience or his magnificence. It becomes very real. Sometimes it's during the prayer. It's not often during the sermon, although sometimes it is. And I'll find that my voice will catch some contact, some concept will just catch me almost as if for the first time. And, but sermons are usually norm, normally, for me at least, they're fairly left-brained deals. So for me, the worship moment usually comes as a combination of words and art or music, the emotional plus the intellectual together, spirit and truth. So come expecting that God will show up, and guess what? He will. He will. You don't know when it might be, so you have to keep alert because you don't want to miss it. One of the reasons that we sing a new song once in a while is because learning new music involves a significant investment of energy. Have you noticed that? Especially a mental investment. It's hard to drift into mindlessness when you're concentrating on learning something new. So one of the best ways to add freshness to worship is to sing new, new songs occasionally. Maybe that's why God asks us to do it. 
And by the way, speaking of new music, I need to make a confession here, okay? I am like many of you. I really don't like learning a new song. I don't, okay? I like old songs. If you were to look through my CD collection, it would be very obvious. Most of it is oldies, okay? The best of Chicago, Gordon Lightfoot's greatest hits, you know, stuff like that. It's a hard thing to learn a new song, especially if you have to lead it. And once in a while, I have to lead it. A couple, of, a, a couple of months back, it was my turn to lead, and there was a new song, and it was not an easy one. The time signature kept changing back and forth all through the song, and uh, I don't read well anyway when it comes to music, so I was listening to it on YouTube and trying to play it and working on it, but then something happened like it often does, and it began to click for me, and as I was listening to Kristen Getty singing it on YouTube and kind of playing along, my eyes started getting a little moist as the meaning of the verses I was singing started coming home to me. And the next month, whenever I wasn't thinking of something specific, guess what song would find its way back into my mind? That song, that one, the one that had been so much trouble for me to learn at first, but which has since become very meaningful to me. Now, of course, I realize it takes more than once or twice of hearing it and singing it before it comes, becomes meaningful like that for the whole church. It takes time, okay? But eventually, it does become meaningful, and it will find its way into your mind when you least expect it, and you will be blessed. And... We do remember, we're not really singing it for ourselves anyway, even though we get the blessing from it eventually. We are really singing it for God. And I hope that makes a little sense for you. So that's number three. Make a conscious choice to be fully present in each moment. And then finally, number four, and this is the last one. And this one is geared for us who tend to be a little less comfortable expressing emotion, okay? Men, in other words. This is for men. But we Adventists, we, we tend generally toward a more intellectual, less emotional expression, I think. We are geared more toward the truth end of things than the spirit. There are times when Colette will say to me, and I'm a little embarrassed to ad admit this really, but she'll say, you know, what I really just want from you is a kiss once in a while, like you used to do when we were dating. And I wonder sometimes if God isn't simply longing for his people just to kiss him, not just to figure him out or understand him or even obey him, just to kiss him. And that's what worship is. Worship is a kiss. So maybe we can discipline ourselves to engage more of our emotional selves when we come to worship. God is seeking a people to worship in spirit and truth. And you know, when you really love someone and, and when you really love them, you're glad to see them, aren't you? When, when you see them, you just can't help but show it. it used to be when my, when my girls were little, I'd come home after being gone all day, or Katie or little Amelia would see me coming up the stairs and they'd run and they'd squeal and they'd put their arms up and they'd, they had to hug me around the legs. You know, it never happens anymore. Although, when I see them now, I get something almost as good. I get a hug. I get a hug, you know. 
And you know how that feels, moms and dads, when your kids do that to you. Makes you feel pretty good. It's the same response that Paul describes when he says in Romans 8, we cry out to God, Abba, Daddy. I know we don't raise our arms in worship. I also know the Bible says we should. Why is it when we grow up we become so terribly guarded with our emotional expressiveness unless we're at a sporting event, especially when it comes to things that matter the most, huh? So in summary, maybe some of us could say something like this. Maybe, maybe we could say, I'm not going to put my arms way up in church. That's just not the way we, we do things around here. And after all, this is worship. It's not some sporting event. You know, but since we are celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ created this whole universe right down to the last Adam, and he created me, and when I sinned, he came from heaven, and he died on the cross to save me from an eternity in hell, and he was raised from the dead, and he overcame my guilt, and he will share his triumph with me throughout eternity. Maybe at least I'll lay my hands in my lap with the palms up. Maybe I could do that. He does all things well. And he is worth it. So let's stand and sing to him, okay? My Jesus, I love thee.